All right, welcome back. We have got another great episode of Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 62, and I have an awesome guest here over in Lexington, Kentucky, Sean Cole. How you doing, Sean? Good. How are you? Doing well, man. So Sean Cole is the uh, former minor league pitching. Uh, not you weren't exactly a pitching coordinator, but you were a. Explain to me your role with the San Diego Padres. Yeah, coordinator of player development, and I bounced between scouting and player development with the Padres. Yeah, so this is one of the cool things about Sean. We're going to talk about all the different uh, hats that he's worn throughout his career, both in uh, U.S. baseball, overseas, with a lot of uh, scouting and player development, pro ball, college ball. So he's been kind of everywhere, which is really cool. Uh, as we run through here, you won a national championship with the uh, University of Arizona Wildcats as their pitching coach there, and you were national pitching coach of the year. Pretty crazy. Correct. It's pretty yeah. awesome. And then uh, two yeah, USA no gold medals on your on your mantle. Where do you, where do you keep your gold medals? You like a certain like a special um, safe. Uh, honestly, I have everything. We just moved, so everything's still in boxes. Gotcha. I used to have everything up in our office in here, but just haven't had a chance to get to it yet. I feel I I picture it like you having some secret thing you push and then like you know smoke like bubbles out <laughs> as it comes up out of the floor or something. But no, that's awesome. I wish it was that cool. And then uh, so it says you've coached a uh, twenty total first rounders and fifty five. I'm sure it's probably more now. Uh, players drafted and signed to professional teams. So really good player development guy here. So uh, so tell me a little about Lexington. So I haven't been. I've I've traveled around. I enjoyed Louisville last year with uh, one of the tournaments that we were at. But um, give me the give me the lowdown. Pretty cool. I mean, Lexington has a good vibe to it. There's a lot of character. Uh, the neighborhood we live in has been awesome. The neighbors have been awesome. Ironically, one of our pitchers at EKU, his parents live right across the street from me. So. Oh, I always man. joke with my wife, and I, I know, I know he's got to pitch good this year. So, and you got to be um, on your best behavior, yeah. They see you out smashing absolutely. pumpkins on Halloween; it'll be over for you. No, I can't do that, and I tell my wife to tone it down too. So, um, it's been good, honestly. My wife's probably enjoyed Lexington more than I have so far. I've been down in Richmond at EKU quite a bit, and then on the road recruiting. Um, but so far, we, we're really enjoying it. <clears throat> nice. And so, you just got out of uh, pro baseball again. And you made the yeah. transition, uh, taking the pitching coach job at Eastern Kentucky. Um, Correct. So tell, tell me a little bit about that. So how long were you in pro ball? And tell me a little bit about your role there, because I know we chatted a bit about it, and you spent a lot of time in the Dominican, a lot of time in the U.S. You were a manager. Again, uh, pretty cool story, so help us out here. Yeah, so I spent just over two years with the Padres, A.J. Preller, uh, the GM, and I met down in Mexico, ironically, when I was with uh, – USA baseball with the national team and got to know each other and spent a lot of time on the phone this the year before uh, I took the job with the Padres and um, I was in a hybrid position where I was involved with the draft and um, all the uh, regional draft workouts my first year and and then I would I would spend two weeks on the scouting side and then two weeks on the player development side so I was bouncing around quite a bit uh, I was a coordinator my first year in the minor league system. So I would row through the lower levels of the minor league system. And <clears throat> in that first year, I think we spent roughly $70 million on international players. So uh, that was the reason why I spent so much time in the Dominican Republic. Um, we had a young manager who was <clears throat> managing those teams and then also running uh, the Dominican Academy. His name is Jeremy Rodriguez. He's now with the Dodgers. I think he's in, um, I think last season he was here in high A or double A as a manager. Um, so that was a priority for us because of all the money that was invested down there um, in that first year. And then my second year, uh, because of all those players now transferred up to rookie ball in Arizona, I oversaw, we had, for the first time, the Padres had two rookie ball teams. Um, so about 100 players, 100 plus running around rehab. Um, I oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of both of those teams and also managed one of the teams. <clears throat> I also filled in as a, a pitching coach in short season in my first year too. So it was a crash course of professional baseball in, in just a little over a two-year period. A lot so, of travel. Yeah, I'm sure. So how did you, uh, how did you bridge the language barrier or scale uh, it or, or bust through yeah, it? Yeah, I, I tried my best to learn as much. Uh, Espanol as I could, um, but we were fortunate. We had translators with us all the time, and, and, and then a lot of the coaches down in the Dominican 
spoke Spanish, so there was a lot of translation going on. It was I joked with people all the time my last year with the Padres, excuse me, I was managing and probably seventy five percent or more of my dugout spoke Spanish. So yeah. that was interesting. And really it it made me uh try to get better as a, a teacher or a coach and, and you gotta really like um, I don't want to say dumb it down, but you got to break it down for those guys because there is a language barrier. So yeah. it was good. Like, get all three of the strikes, three strikes on that guy <laughs> with the bat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For the most part, to be honest, I mean, those kids were taking English every day. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when it came to baseball, they, they had a pretty good sense and idea of what you were talking about. So yeah. It was good. I really enjoyed being around a, a lot of the Latin players and the Dominican kids enjoyed it. So did they kind of reach out to you as far as like helping them with their Spanish? Were they like actively try to, hey, hey, how do I say? It? Or were they kind of like doing it on their own? And then, because I know when, you know, in my playing days, the the Latin guys, like really great people, uh, but a lot of times they just sort of stay to themselves, and a lot of times they were just mm-hmm. in Spanish, not because they didn't know a lot of English, but they just weren't as comfortable with it, so they just kind of like stayed in the shadows yeah. and you know being older players i think at that point they were kind of just like dug in where they weren't gonna maybe learn it to a higher degree or whatever it was but yeah i think it uh i don't know when they were younger were they really eager to learn english or i i think they are and then when they get on the field it's more of a comfort thing and that's why they gravitate to the other latin players especially when they get over to the states i mean it's, yeah, a, for sure. it's a bit of a culture shock for them yeah. um especially you know in the dominican it's like a mini university the academy they're at so every day there's a schedule they're on the field and then after they get off the field they're going into english class or they're going into classes that are teaching them how to have a bank account and write checks and all these things so it's it's pretty crazy and then even when they come over to arizona at the same deal it's pretty much the same schedule at the end of the day they're going into english class so and that's standard every day they're learning and having to learn. And then when they struggle with it or they fight it, it's just, you know, you got to make it clear to them, like what the ultimate goal is and that's to get to the big leagues and you got to be able to speak to the media clearly. And, um, but I, I do think it's a, definitely a comfort thing where they revert back to, well, I'm going to hang out with the guys that I know really well. And I grew up with in the Academy and I can speak Espanol or Spanish. And then also they gravitate to the coaches that are, from the Dominican or from Latin America and they speak Spanish and I, there's a comfort to it. And I completely understand it. Yeah, I didn't, sure. I didn't understand it initially. It gave me a lot more insight and perspective when I went to the Dominican and went as many times as I did. And it, it made it clearer to me, especially seeing where they, how they grow up and where they come from. And um, I had more of a respect for what they go through. It's, it's, it's a tough deal what they go through. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, what are the what kind of life skills do they teach? So I know you said they you know, like like having a bank account and obviously yeah. English, but like like what else is kind of on that uh, on I mean, that curriculum? Sex education, which was interesting, you know, and they're coming in and talking to them about um, STDs and taking care of themselves, and then also Major League Baseball. We we had um, the top guys from the commissioner's office, the security office, come in and speak to them just about handling police officers in the United States and. Um, how to handle certain situations and how things can be perceived differently in the United States versus Latin America. And so they're getting, they're getting a crash course of, of life in the United yeah. States. And, and that, that is the reason why when you take a step back and you look what they're going through and especially being away from family and, um, and some, some of them became millionaires overnight, just what they're going through is it's pretty intense. Um, and it's life, it's life changing in a lot of ways, not just not just because of the money, but also just being separated from your family, being separated from your culture, having to change a little bit of how you operate or act. Because, you know, in the Dominican, like they're dancing, having a good time all the time, um, laughing. They want music playing during practice. And in the state, some people frown upon that stuff and look at it as, well, they're being boisterous or they're being disrespectful to the game. And, and I don't I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's just it's how they grew up and it's yeah. their culture. Yeah, it's a lot different for sure. Now, do you feel it's like the American different. kids have all the life skills they need? I'm, I'm sure that's definitely not the case. But when they're, you know, 18, going through a similar path, you know, they're signed out of high school or whatever, and they're suddenly on their own. How well do you feel like they're prepared? 
And do they get any kind of coaching like that on the American side? Because you said you're a, a rookie ball coach, right? Um, how do they how do they handle it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, for the most part, I think I think a lot of them handle it well. The guys that come from from college programs into pro ball, I think, are more advanced in the life skills area, and also time management, discipline. Guys they've come had, straight they've from had high their school. toga parties, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they've gone through it, and and um, you know, going through a college education, it, it forces you to explore other areas and learn different things and um socially you're around so many different people especially if you go to a big school where there's 35 or 50,000 kids you gotta you gotta figure things out where if a high school kid especially a high school kid that comes from a small town um things it it, it can be a culture shock for them also and just i think the other thing and you can attest to this is the the day-to-day grind of pro ball i think a lot of people don't have a real grasp of when they sign especially out of high school and haven't gone through a rigorous college program, um, that day-to-day, is it's, it's a real grind. I mean, you're yeah. getting up early in the morning, you're doing early work, practice, all that stuff, take a break, and then you're going out and playing a game. And it's an everyday deal from spring training all the way through September. So um, I think that's the biggest thing that those guys run into, and it's a shock for them just how, how much of a mental and physical grind that is. Yeah. So – uh, fill us in a little bit. So, how did you end up in pro ball? Once again, AJ. Pro- well, let's back up to when I got done playing in college. I got an internship with the Seattle Mariners. I, I grew up in in the Seattle area, and um, I, so I interned in baseball operations. So that was my first real uh, taste of professional baseball. Um, and then from there, I got into college coaching at Edmonds Community College, a junior college up in the Northwest. And then from there, I went to University of Arizona. So <clears throat> because of that stint with the Mariners, pro ball was always in the back of my mind. The one thing, the uh, the crossover from college to the MLB is tough because uh, the contracts don't line up at the same time. So yeah. uh, contracts for college are in the summer and pro ball is in the fall. So it's a very difficult transition if you want to do it, um, which is probably one of the reasons why it took me so much time um, down the road to, to transition into pro ball. Um, but like I said earlier, I, I got the job with the national team with USA baseball and AJ Preller is, uh, uh, I mean, the guy, the guy barely sleeps. He's on the road all the time. He's out scouting. He's one of the GMs that's probably more visible, um, out recruiting or not recruiting, but scouting players. And he loves team USA and the national team. And, and, and just let me say this from a, from a scouting standpoint, the national team is probably one of the best um, <clears throat> uh, views you get of players because you get to see them in, in high leverage situations. You get to see them, um, their challenge because of the schedule, the, the, the travel going to a, a foreign country. Some of those guys, it's the first time they've ever left the state. The food is challenging for some of them. Um, uh, the time change. So, it's the best way to get a real view or get the best view you can of, of some of those players makeup. And I think that's why AJ follows that team around. And, and that's how AJ and I met, uh, I mean, he's hanging out outside of our dugout almost every day in Mexico, wearing basketball shorts and a t-shirt. You would never know he's a GM. Um, hmm. and that's where it all started. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, you, you just don't know. And that's one thing I try to tell players all the time is you never know who's watching. You know, I, like when I would go out and, and cross-check players, um, I won't say who the kid was, but I'll give an example. I, I had to go to uh, see a kid in Tennessee for the draft, and he was uh, uh, like a third or fourth round prospect, and, um, a good player, but there were some things that we heard that were some issues off the field, and I went out to watch him, and I wore just regular clothes and didn't tell anybody I was coming and hung around and watched for a day. I got there early, and you just, you'd never know who's watching. And like I said, I mean, AJ goes out all the time and <clears throat> you would think that he's just some scruffy dude off the streets watching games where he's GM, he's making the decision. So that's how I got back into pro ball was meeting, meeting AJ and developing a relationship. And um, it's tough to turn down an opportunity when a GM's offering you a job. So, yeah. And then from there you journeyed to, uh, to the Arizona Wildcats and you want to, national championship. So tell us a little bit about, uh, what it's like at a high D one program. Well, 
I got I got really lucky because I, I I walked in. Well, I was I, I was the youngest pitching coach in the Pac-10 at the time. Um, I went straight from a, a junior college program to University of Arizona, and I walked into a job working for a legend, Andy Lopez. Um, and he had I think at the time when I started working for him, he had been coaching for 28 or 29 years, and um, so that type of experience. And then Mark Wazikowski, who's now the head coach at Purdue, was the recruiting coordinator. So really, I, I got lucky. I, I walked in as a young, uh, inexperienced coach at a high level, and I got to learn from two of the best guys that I could be learning from. And to this day, I still have relationships with both of them. And um, <clears throat> I mean, I reached out to Andy last week just to talk pitching with him and how he how he worked uh, with guys dropping guys down and sidearm pitchers. And so to to have that advantage to be able to reach out to either him or Wazikowski on recruiting, which is tough now because we're kind of competitors, Mark and I. But um, uh, it, it was great. But also on the other side of it, what I tell people, and you know, Andy said this to me when he offered me a job: understand what you're signing up for. Uh, when you're at a high level program like that, the expectation is to get to Omaha every year, and it's not just talked about; it is expected. I, I remember our AD. Uh, Greg Byrne, who's now the athletic director at Alabama, uh, he would come out in the fall and tell us the expectation is to, to get to the College World Series. Um, so there was uh, at the same time where I was learning a lot, and it was great to be around that that level of players and in, and in a great conference. Uh, there was also a high level of stress and um, uh, a lot of work and time on the road recruiting and. Um, you know, being at the mid-major level now, some of these coaches will joke that, you know, they think it's easier to recruit at a big school like that. And, and I, I try to remind them, like, yes, those schools uh, have a lot of nice things to offer, but it's not like you're recruiting against Eastern Kentucky when you're at Arizona. You're recruiting against LSU, Texas, Florida. I mean, it's 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 a tough deal, um, and you got to get after it. It was it was awesome working at a big school like that because every year you did know that you had a, le a legitimate shot at competing for a national title. So what were some of the, uh, what were some of the tactics you used to, uh, to help, you know, sway a kid from, from away from Arizona state or away from, you know, Stanford to come to Arizona? Well, the tradition was easy to sell. Um, at the time before we won, I think it was three national championships and multiple appearances to regionals and multiple players that had come through the program that went on to the big leagues. And then, excuse me, it was also very easy to sell Coach Lopez. I mean, the, the guy had over a thousand wins and won two national titles at two different programs. And um, I believe when, when I took the job with, with Team USA that him and Andy – and Mike Martin were tied for the most players in the big leagues of current Division One coaches. So to have a player come in and say, you know, my goals are to, to compete for a national championship. My goals are to get to professional baseball and then also get a good education. Um, well, we could easily say, well, we can do that for you. You're going to get a chance. In a recruiting class, it was Andy's goal. Every recruiting class gets a chance to compete and stretch in Omaha for a national championship. And, and you could say or argue that they did that almost every recruiting class. And then also to get a chance, if I remember right, the team in 2012, the nine guys in the lineup, I think seven out of those nine guys are in the big leagues right now. So to be able to sell that you're going to get developed, go on and play professional baseball, you're going to get a chance to compete for a national championship. And then also Arizona campus is pretty sweet and the weather's really good to be able to sell all those things. It wasn't hard. Now, like I said, though, but if you're competing against LSU or Texas, you know, Austin's a pretty sweet place to, to go for three or four years and Baton Rouge and that, that environment they have there, you know, you are fighting against that. But we had factual things that we could sell. And, and most guys, you know, when they're, when they're talking to you, they want to get developed and go on and play professionally and then also compete for a national title. And when those things are facts, it's not, not hard to sell. Yeah. So what, uh, one of the questions that pops into my mind is, I mean, there's tons of really high level programs, right? Like Arizona state's right down the street and all these pac 10 right. schools. But for you to say that like seven out of nine guys actually made it like all the way up the river, I can imagine the salmon like jumping up. Like it's so hard to make it to yeah. the big leagues, even if you're an amazing player. I mean, fifty percent of first rounders don't make it, right? Even for a day. Right. 
right. like, w- what do you think that that X factor is that so many Arizona players, you know, have made it? That seems crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Eckstein is a good friend of mine, and he played for Andy at Florida, and he'll tell you all the time. And and you'll hear the war stories about Coach Lopez. He's very demanding, and he's going to push you to do it the right way. And sometimes it's not the friendliest way. Um, like David says all the time, though, is, you know, Andy, because of the, the way practices are designed and how he gets after you mentally, uh, it prepares you for pro ball. Pro ball is almost um, easy for you after going through Arizona's program. And that was one thing with recruits that I try to do a really good job of is, is explain to them, like, there's a lot of nice things here. There's a, you know, you're going to have um, anywhere from seven to 9,000 fans at your games, sometimes more. You're going to have a really good atmosphere, but you're coming to play for a guy that is very demanding and he's going to push you hard. And if that's not something you're on board with, then you probably need to look elsewhere. Um, and and I, I truly believe that is the X factor was the way Coach Lopez ran his, his practices and, and how he, did, he didn't waver on any of the standards he believed in and he was going to push you in and demand that you do it right. And since I say it to people all the time, I said it to David a couple of weeks ago, it's a curse and a blessing that I worked for Andy. It's a blessing because of what I learned. And it's a curse because I haven't been in an environment like that since I've left. And that's not a knock to any of the places I've been. Obviously I've been to some really cool and neat places, but I think uh, culture and society has changed a little bit where players don't want to be pushed really hard. Yeah. At least initially, deep down inside, at the core of it, every every young man wants to be pushed to their limits and challenged and get better. But um, the culture now is you know, not to get on them or be too aggressive with them. And um, I, I truly believe that was the X factor at Arizona. Andy was going to push you, and yeah. same for the coaches. I got better because. Andy demanded that as an assistant coach that I did things right. As a pitching coach, I did things right. Uh, I'll give you an example. I think it was either, I think it was my second year at Arizona. I mismanaged the bullpen. I was late with our closer and we almost lost the game, thankfully. And I still remember Bobby Renard and I still talked to him. He had a walk off home run to beat the University of Washington. So we won the game. He kind of saved me. Um, but Andy got on me pretty good about mismanaging the bullpen and not being late with our guys out of the pen. And you know what? I, since that time, I was, I've never been, I, w- I haven't been late again. Yeah. And I even watch games right now to see how bullpens are being managed because of, of that experience. And, and if he didn't, if he didn't get on me the way that he did, I might not have uh, thought it was as important as it was after, after that conversation we had. And then to be honest with you, I think there's extreme value in being able to manage a pen as a, as a pitching coach or as a manager or head coach. I think that that's one of the more important things that you have to do. And maybe one of the more challenging things you have to do because you have different personnel every year and different things going on. And you also got to match up with your opponent. So he was very challenging. And I believe that that, that was the X factor at Arizona and for preparing guys to move on and succeed at the pro level. So let's talk about coach Cole then. So, uh, what what is your system like who are you as a coach now having been in pro ball having you mm-hmm. know been in really high level division one having been a, a junior college coach you've been sort of everywhere you've been in the dominican you've been in the united states you've got two gold medals in your special little case that has uh fog that comes out <laughs> of it every time you open yeah, it right yeah. um yeah. you know so like you're at a new program here at eastern kentucky um, mm-hmm. and there's kids are different now than they ever were. So what mm-hmm. do you do to keep them from Twittering? Oh, our coach was really mean to me. I'm going to quit baseball forever. You know, what do you do to mm-hmm. get the best out of your kids and, and who are you as a coach? I think, uh, you know, all the experiences that you just spoke of, I've been able to pull, um, little tidbits from everywhere I've been. Um, and then also uh, I've been around a lot of great coaches. Uh, from the pro level, Division One, Team USA was such a great experience because you had so many, you had guy, you had really good coaches from the high school level all the way up to guys working in front offices that you got to spend time around and and pick their brains and, and pull things from. And then and then with the Padres, I got to spend time with 
you know, like Trevor Hoffman or Moises Alou and ask him about hitting or, uh, um, you shake Mo- Moises you know, Alou's hand. <laughs> I got, I had dinner at Moises Alou's house in the Dominican. We got, we got to know each other very well. I mean, Moises is, he's awesome, but you ask him about hitting. And this is one thing to, and I'll answer your question this way is like Moises Alou, you ask him about hitting. It's very simple. He said, I'm going to attack the fastball early. Oh, oh, count. I'm trying to jump on a heater. And if, if I got a hit in my first at bat, the rest of the day was easy for me because I, that pressure was off of me and now I could ease into my other ABs. And, but he was very, it was very simple. And then working for Andy, that was, the, he would always say, you know, I want to make a difficult skill really, really easy. So, so almost dumb it down, make it as simple as possible, ex- explain it to the player, demonstrate it, and then have them rep it out. And I still do those things. So, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what do you do with your pitchers? What do you, what do you do? What's, what's the magical recipe or whatever? And I tell them all the time, you know, I'm probably going to disappoint you with my answer. It's, it's very simple. Uh, there's a plan every day to what we're going to do. Um, and there's some standard things I believe in that we're going to do. But I think the key um, is getting to know each player individually and spending a lot of time with them and talking things through. Early on as a coach, uh, especially working for Andy and seeing how he operated. I thought that that was the way I had to do it all the time. And I think there are some times that you do need to turn up the heat on players and push them a little bit. But being in pro ball, I think, taught me to have a little more patience and really talk to guys and figure out what's going on in their head. So if you were to ask some of the EKU pitchers today, like, you know, how, how does Coach Cole operate with you? I ask them a lot of questions during bullpen sessions, even if I have the answer, I'll ask them and I'm looking for an answer. And I'll, I'll sometimes I'll say why, like five or six times in a row. Why? Because especially younger guys, they'll say, I don't know a lot. Yeah. No, you do know. You, I don't know is a way of saying, I don't want to give you the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why do we keep rolling that breaking ball in there? Why? Why? And the only reason why I do that is because I tell them, you know, eventually I want you to get to a point where you're able to self-coach yourself you're able to make adjustments. It's not about me coaching you all the time. Like if I can get you to a place where you're able to make in-game adjustments in, uh, you're able to make adjustments in your bullpen, then we're heading in the right direction. Now you're able to self-sustain with yourself. And pitching, as you know, is, is arguably one of the diff- most difficult positions on the field. You're by yourself. You're on that little hill by yourself and you're controlling the game. And if you don't, if you don't know how to self-coach or make adjustments on your own, I can't make 10 visits a game. I can't come out there and tell you all the time, hey, get your elbow up or, or stay above the rubber or slow down, quit overthrowing. You know, like you got to get to a point where you're able to do that. And that's also one of the other things is daily routines. And, and I, and, and that got hammered in my head during my time in pro ball. Like you got to have your own daily routines. What works for you? Um, I get the question all the time about, am I a driveline guy? And I tell players all the time that, you know, if that's something you believe in, then do it. If you believe, if you if you came to me today and said you need to stand on your head five times before you throw your bullpen, and that's going to make you be effective, I'm not going to take that away from you. So, um, but there are some core beliefs I have. I'm a big throwing program guy, long toss, long toss guy. Excuse me. Um, I think there's got to be real focus and intent to what you're doing every day in the throwing program because, you know, some days for a pitcher, that's the only quality thing you're going to do for the day to, yeah. to really work on your delivery and your release points. So that's got to be important. And so I put a stopwatch on those guys. I don't really allow them to talk when they're going through that 14 or 15 minutes of their day. Like they got to work on their craft. Um, I'm a firm believer in bullpen sessions that that that's got to be structured and there's got to be a high level of focus and intent to what you're doing on every pitch. And there's got to be, some dialogue when you don't get the result that you want. And, and I want to know why there's a conversation, like where's the breakdown in your delivery? It's not me just telling you, no, you got to do this, this, and this, because if I'm, if I'm always telling them what it is, then I feel like I'm holding their hand. You know, essentially I'm holding their hand all the way through. And then are they really grasping it? Are they really making an adjustment? So mm-hmm. I think ultimately for me, it's, each pitcher, there's individual things that got to be worked on. And then there's also some things that I strongly believe in that the pitching staff has to do every day, but they got to get to a point where individually they know their, they know their daily routines. They know their adjustments. They know what works for them. 
Um, and that's, that's my whole mission and goal is you take a freshman to a sophomore to a junior. And hopefully by the time he's on the back end of that sophomore year or early into his junior year, he knows what he's doing. He knows what his adjustments are and he can, he can run his own bullpen if he needs to. Um, early on, I'll script those bullpens. You know, and I, I, I will set them up, uh, those bullpens to how we're going to pitch in game and how they're going to utilize their weapons. But then I'm open to dialogue. Hopefully down the road, it, it does become dialogue in a pin because that guy's taking more ownership of, of, of his performance and, and what he's doing. So what, uh, when, when guys arrive in pro ball, especially after, you know, a program like yours, they're probably pretty well prepared. They have an understanding of routine and all that stuff. Uh, do you see a big variation between the, the high school drafts and the college drafts, how they would come into, uh, you know, their first or second year of pro ball, like just their routine and their, their overall structure to their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you probably see a similar with your incoming freshmen, obviously like they don't have yeah. a lot from high school, but do you feel like it's gotten better over the last bunch of years? Cause you've been in the game for a while now as a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, are you mm-hmm. seeing kids with more structure as they come in as freshmen? As I kind of rephrase I really the question. Think, yeah, I really, I really think it's, it's um, where they come from. You know, this is one thing that Andy used to say to, to Waz and I all the time, get players from winning high school programs. Because usually they're being taught the right way. They also have experience winning um, versus the guy that's never, never experienced winning and doesn't have much structure in his program. You're, you almost have to reset those guys and rebuild them. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but it's one of the reasons it, it is the reason you and I met because I wanted to reach out. Clifton Slagle is a guy that I, I was recruiting and, you know, we, we're probably pulling back the reins a little bit now because he's got some big schools on him, and I, and I completely understand that he wants to go to a big school. Um, but I, for, from recruiting or scouting JC kids, unless he, unless he fooled me, I mean, he commanded the fastball better than I've, I've seen most JC guys. So I wanted to find out why. And, um, you know, obviously I want to give his JC coach some credit also, but talking to you, you spent a lot of time from when he was like 12 years old all the way up. So there must be some structure and some things that you taught him um, to get him to where he's at today. Um, and most guys, I hate to say this, I don't think most high school players have um, consistent direction or guidance like you gave Clifton Flagle. So that's the difference. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you prime examples. When I showed up here at EKU, there were guys in this program they know now, but they didn't even know how to, uh, with their gloves, show fastball glove side or fastball arm side or <laughs> show breaking ball to the catcher. I mean, just little things like that. Those yeah. are little details for me. Like you can't be standing on the mound and telling the catcher every time where you want to throw your pitch. You can, but that's not the that's not the proper way. So yeah. little details like that, controlling the run game. I mean, that 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 seems to be a lost art in the show showcase mentality. It's not important. It's okay if they steal. No, it is important because when you get into a situation late in the game, and they bring in Billy Hamilton to pinch run at first base, and you have no way to combat that guy in a two to one game, he's going to steal second. And then more yeah. likely he's going to steal third, and then now all it takes is a pass ball or or a little or stinker blooper yeah. down the line, and he scores. Yeah, you know? or he'll so, just steal home too because he's crazy. Yeah, or he'll steal home. But but see, that's the thing for me is it's not just you know you you'll have the analytics guys say the stolen base stolen base doesn't matter. Well, let's take it a step further. If I don't know how to control the run game and I'm distracted by that base runner, how's that going to affect my ability to throw strikes? So that's where for me you. Like pitching is not just about throwing strikes. There are other factors that that factor into your performance. Controlling the run game is one of them. Being able to field your position is another. Being able to um, control your emotions pitch by pitch is another factor. Like all those things factor in to make a a complete pitcher. So, um, I mean, I had guys this year, and not just freshmen, but older guys in the program that were rolling out 1.7s and 1.8s to the plate. That doesn't work. We played Wright State a couple weeks ago, and Wright State is coached very well on the bases. They're actually doing things to try to get our guys rattled. And if we hadn't been working on these things in bullpens, it probably would have totally shocked our guys. Um, Wright State had a guy at third base who got halfway down the line, 
he probably could have stole home on one of our pitchers because we weren't doing anything to combat that guy. Um, so <clears throat> that's, and, and I think that's a, uh, been a consistent theme from my time at Arizona all the way through is it really just boils down to who's been in these, these guys' lives leading up to Division One baseball or professional baseball that like yourself or, or Alan Jager is a good friend of mine or, you know, Eric Cressy working with guys and teaching them how to um, take care of their arms, just little things, little nuggets that have been sprinkled or given to these kids along the way that have prepared them for the higher levels. That's the difference maker versus some guys that don't have a guy, a guy like you in their life teaching them how to pitch properly. Um, if they don't have it, then they're, they're a little bit behind the eight ball and they're living solely off their talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tough thing to do. It's tough when you get to the higher levels just to live off talent. Yeah, for sure. So, we you spoke a little bit about about driveline. Uh, you know, I know a lot of recruits are doing weighted ball stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, I mean, well, the industry's changed a ton, and mm-hmm. the way kids are training is ton. And I think on the whole, it's pretty good. I mean, kids can, uh, and I'm not endorsing driveline by any means i'm just they're just one of the leaders obviously and they i think do a a pretty good job as far as having a reason behind everything they do and uh, but anyway they become the leader and so yeah it's a thing where i know recruits ask programs like do you do this Mm -hmm. like i want this to be a part of my routine and um there's just so much more information out there for a kid that's my overarching point has nothing to do really with Mm -hmm. them but you can google anything you want to google at any any time right and you can figure out okay i can do this I can do that. Um, you know, do you see kids who seem like farther along as far as their, uh, their education? Um, in some ways, yes. And, and in some ways players are more inquisitive and they want to ask more questions. And I think that's because of what the culture right now has created with all the information and, and all the stuff that's at their disposal, which I think is good. Um, on, on an extreme end, I have a, I have a young man in our program right now who went to the, I think it's called the Florida ranch, the Florida baseball ranch, or he went mm-hmm. down there and, and he's, he's very technical with what he does. I mean, for the first time ever in the middle of a bullpen, I had, I, I had a pitcher, we were talking about some stuff and he took his glove off, put it under his arm and walked down the mound to have like a, a debate with me. And I told him, you know, we're not going to do that. That's, that's like we're not going to do that. So they can get because of all the information that's at their disposal, it, it can oversaturate a little bit for for some of these guys. Where, like I said earlier, and and I learned this from Coach Lopez, let's make this difficult skill as simple as possible. Um, and you know, we had uh, four recruits last weekend, and every one of them asked me if I was a driveline guy. And yeah. and my my answer to all of them was. Is, no, I'm not a driveline guy, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to weighted balls. We throw, we have a pre-circuit that we do, our pitchers do every day out here before they go into their throwing program. And one of the areas of that circuit is plyo balls. And for me, anything that we do with weighted balls or plyo balls, it has to be in a, a, a pitching delivery motion. That's the only thing that I do maybe a little different than what I've seen at some of the like the Texas ranch or the driveline. And I'm not saying which is right or wrong. I'm just saying that works better for me and, and, yeah. and how I'm able to teach guys. And it just makes more sense that we're going through a, a pitching delivery instead of the, I don't even know the terms, but the run and gun that I see where guys are running and they're flying open and slinging a ball into a, a net or something. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, I'm just saying for me and my, my style that I like to keep everything in the context of a pitching delivery or pitching motion so, like I told all those guys, and going back to your original question of how guys are coming in to high-level programs and if they're ready or not, so watching Trevor Bauer for three years at UCLA from his freshman year, sophomore, junior year, I mean, the guy had whatever you want to say, plus pitchability or or 80-grade pitchability. I mean, the, the, the guy knew how to pitch. Um like I, I said earlier, the lineup that we had from uh, 2010 to 12 has seven big leaguers in it, and Bauer used to make them look like um, little leaguers. I mean, we cut them up. I, I I still remember this very clearly. I think it was his junior year. 
he punched out, I want to say, 12 of our guys. And on every strikeout, they're playing MC Hammer, can't touch this. And Bauer's like dancing on the mound as he's getting his next sign. So the guy was extremely confident, knew what he was doing, knew how to pitch. He'd go curveball, change up, fastball up out of the zone, curveball down in the dirt to finish you off, or fastball under the hands. He knew what he was doing. He is a prime candidate, in my opinion, to go to drive line and tinker and see yeah. if he can get more out of his stuff. Like I, that's why he's the, the poster boy for drive line. Whereas if I'm getting going back to what we were just talking about a little, a little while ago, I'm getting a freshman who doesn't even understand the concept of uh, how to tell the catcher how to, okay, I'm throwing a fastball with my glove. Uh, he doesn't understand how to control the run game. Uh, he doesn't understand the difference between a OO breaking ball and a two strike breaking ball. Like those things for me foundationally have to be established before you start going and tinkering with all these other tools and programs that are at your disposal. That, that's just my opinion. I, I'm not saying which is right or which is wrong. I just think it's a situation you're trying to run before you can actually walk. And I think there are some key foundational things that have to be set for pitches in order for them to be successful before they go out and start tinkering or, or trying to increase velo. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you another example. I won't say his name, but we have another kid in this program that he's been here for, uh, this is going on his fifth year, and he touches. He, he'll flash you some 94s and 95s, and he pitched very well in a very prestigious summer program. I mean, uh, summer collegiate program this, this this past summer, and he only had two or three teams talking to him, and they were offering him, you know, anywhere from five thousand to ten thousand dollars. And my point to this is, is he's got the velo, he's got the arm strength but no teams are biting. He didn't get, he didn't get drafted after his junior year and he put up good numbers here last year and, but there's no secondary pitch. Mm-hmm. So, and that's going back to Trevor Bauer. Garrett Cole was the Friday night guy at UCLA when Bauer was a Saturday guy. Garrett Cole is freshman and sophomore year is sitting 97, 99 miles an hour. He's not flashing it. He's sitting 97, 99. And our guys would tee off on him his first couple of years until he developed a secondary pitch to offset his fastball. So that's my explanation to guys when they ask me, am I driveline guy? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? And really, um, I'm not opposed to it. And we do, we do mix in driveline, plyo balls and all those things, but it is not the focal point of my development program with pitchers, especially yeah. at this level. Now, if we want to increase some of that stuff after they improve in some of these other areas that I, I deem very important to um, becoming a, 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 an elite pitcher or a whole pitcher, however you want to put it, then yeah, I'm all for guys going and tinkering and doing things like that. But if you're not up to par in all these other areas, like commanding your fastball, trolling a run game, uh, ex, you know, executing secondary pitches and having a real good feel for your secondary pitches, then I, I just don't know if I want to accelerate that process and, and um, sprinkle in all these other things that they have at their disposal. I think it's good that they have all these options and all this information, but I also think at times it can be almost counterproductive and it's giving them too much information. Yeah, so, they can definitely sift through all the stuff that's on the web. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I get caught up in it sometimes. I'm like going through Twitter and looking at stuff like, wow, look at all this crazy stuff. Look at all these great things. And, and then sometimes I got to say, well, it's just too much for me. Um, yeah. But I do think it's good. And I think it's been very good for people, you know, uh, like yourself or for Kyle Bodie or any, anybody else. It's, it's a great way to promote what you have going on. And I don't think that there's any malicious intent with what anybody's doing. If anything, people are always trying to seek better ways. And, and I think that's a good thing. And it's healthy conversations. And, you know, like a couple of days ago, I got called, um, by the gentleman that oversees the National Pitching Coach of the Year Award. And he said that he wants to open up the pitching hot stove at the uh, ABCA and the uh, the, the uh, National Pitching Coach of the Year Award. He wants to bring in past winners and have them present the award and be there for Q&A. And, and I told him I'm all for that. And I think that's awesome because you're now getting in a room with past winners, a current winner, and however many coaches that are in the room and you're opening up all this dialogue and conversations and new ideas. And I, I think that stuff's very healthy and, and yeah. great. But on the other side, just like video analysis, I'll tell players sometimes, no, you don't, you need to back off of watching 
too much video. I mean, sometimes this stuff can be too much and just, you know, simplify and we just need to, let's just focus on one or two things to get, to get better at instead of 10. Yeah, it's definitely, there's just like anything else, like, you know, you could be in the weight room and maybe a goblet squat's fine for you, but a barbell squat's just like not the right thing yet, you know, it doesn't mean either one's evil. And, uh, you know, with all the weighted ball stuff, it's not evil. Like it's, it just depends on the person. It depends how it's done. It depends on the context and everyone gets in this Mm -hmm. like big huff where it's like, Oh, I'm on, I'm in this tribe. I'm in this tribe. Like they're the worst. They're hurting everyone. They're hurting everyone. It's like, I don't think anyone has any malicious intent and B it's just depends on who's doing it and how you do it. And if it's right for your body and right for you at that time of your development and, there's just so yeah. much like that tribalism where everyone just wants to fight and I'm, I'm on this team. I'm on this team. Like, uh, you, yeah. you, you do weighted balls. I don't do weighted balls. Like I don't care anymore. We don't do them much. Yeah. Uh, we haven't done them at all really in our last four or five years, but just because we don't doesn't mean I think they're evil. Like I certainly right. don't like, it's just, just like anything else. It's a tool that you could use for right. some aspect of development. So I think you're yeah on the right track. It's just, you know, I think it's really tough to navigate this world. And I'm sure for your perspective as a recruiter, uh, trying to figure out like, what's the, what do they want to hear? Right. I mean, what do you feel like a lot of these kids want to hear when they're quizzing you, which is, which is good. I think a lot of kids probably don't ask a lot of questions of you, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't know if it's because the culture has changed. I've been hit with a lot of tough questions lately by by kids and and parents and i think it is because they're more informed which i think is a good thing um for me i don't approach it i don't approach it from the standpoint of i'm going to answer these questions based off what you want to hear i'm going to answer the questions based off of what i know and what i've experienced and i think that's one advantage i have now versus when i first started coaching at 23 24 years old is now i have um I, I, I have a lot of established experiences so I can say, well, no, this is, this is how we did it. And, you know, I, I, like I give this example all the time in 2012, we had three weekend starters at Arizona that threw a combined, those three guys threw more complete games than the entire SEC conference. <laughs> well, we didn't have any arm injuries. Those guys were maintaining or increasing VLO into June in, in Omaha in the college road series. And we didn't throw weighted balls. Now, I'm not saying that that – I like the way you put it. I'm not saying it's the all-in be-all, but it's a tool that you could sprinkle in. And I also think it's important, and I think this is important for coaches to hear, I can't fully invest in something that I don't truly understand. Because yeah. then I'm out coaching something that I'm not fully uh, invested in or have a total understanding how it operates. And this is this is an honest answer that I gave – just this past weekend, I said, honestly, for me, driveline hasn't been around long enough for me to determine whether or not it's beneficial or not beneficial. It's been a very short snapshot. And I go back to, you know, Tom House is a throwing guru. He's now working with like Tom Brady and Drew Brees on their throwing motions and other NFL quarterbacks. Well, there was a period of time where he was teaching call and fall or drop and drive and everybody was buying into it and everybody loved it. And then I, I believe in I could be corrected on this, but I think over time he came back and actually said, you know what, that stuff wasn't right and, and guys were getting injured. Or I remember there was a time where people were, were teaching the inverted W and everybody thought that was the right way. And that's why I don't want to kill this stuff and say, no, absolutely. Like you were saying how people are on both sides of the fence. And I'm not taking a side. Like I think, I think it's valuable and healthy that people are trying to seek new ways to grow and develop people. And if it works, it works. But if it doesn't, then, you know, people need to come out and say, no, this doesn't work and we need to shift gears and go a different direction. For me, it's just, it hasn't been around long enough for me to say, absolutely, I'm a driveline guy. I mean, that, that stuff works. And then on the other side, and just me being totally honest, I don't know enough about it. I haven't, yeah. I haven't dived in and gone up to driveline and, and really said, you know, I'm, I, I want to know all this. And you and I, in the first conversation we had on the phone, I brought this up and this has been in the back of my mind for a while. My trips to the Dominican, I go down there and there are so many young kids from 16 to 22 years old down there that are just throwing the heck out of the baseball. 
Um, and at least the ones I was around, none of them did weighted balls. None of them had personal pitching coaches. And that has stayed in my mind that maybe that some of the stuff we have so much to offer here in the state that it, it stunts athleticism in deliveries or it, or it oversaturates the thoughts in the head or, or it, um, distracts guys from really what they need to be doing. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but it has been a thought in my mind just from going to the Dominican and seeing all the arm strength guys down there and they're not on any of the programs that the kids in the U.S. are. I think some pro teams now are starting to sprinkle some of it in and it'll be interesting to see over time how that either uh, negatively or positively affects those pitchers down in the, in the DR. Yeah. And it seems like the big factor is just strength and conditioning, right? Because everyone throws harder across the board, right? Whether you're American or Latin, and mm-hmm. so then get, what's the unifying factor? It seems just like the way they're trained and the arm care, mm-hmm. like everyone knows mm-hmm. you, you take care of your arm these days. Like you do your rotator cuff mm-hmm. exercise, hopefully your, your your forearm exercises. But I mean, it doesn't matter what your background is, what your ethnicity is, like everyone's throwing harder. So mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to say, but yeah, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see as it goes, but just one of those but, tools. And that's another answer that I gave to, to the recruits we had last weekend is really if we put you on any type of structured program, whether it's throwing program or weightlifting or, and you haven't been a part of any type of structured program up to this point, you're going to get better. It's, yeah, just, for it's sure. a given. You're on a structured program. It's like the time I spent in Japan and you watch those guys, they all throw split fingers. Um, I remember seeing a, a couple pitchers on their national team that faced our team in the first couple of innings, if they didn't feel they were dialed in on the mound, they were going and throwing more pitches in the bullpen in between innings. <laughs> Some people here in the States would say that that is crazy. They're going to blow up their arms, but that's what they've done for a long time. And they believe it. And their guys are really good. It's one of the things that in the last couple of weeks, I actually, we have a young man here in the program that throws a split finger. And there's another guy that I'm actually teaching to throw a splitty. And, you know, I don't remember, I think it was like 10 years ago here in the States, everybody came out and said, you can't throw split fingers. You know, it blows up elbows. Well, wait a minute though. Like Hideo Nomo, he didn't blow up his elbow. And I got to spend time around Hideo Nomo. He's one of the Padres special advisors. And I saw him teach a kid named uh, David Bedner, a split finger, um, an American college kid who's now, I think he got up to double A with the Padres last year. And I talked to David last week about the splitty and he said he loves it and it's been a great pitch for him i mean our guys on the on the national team they struggled with the split finger in japan until they started laying off the pitch but it's an extremely good pitch but like i said in here in the united states there's this fear factor like no you can't teach those guys and i've decided oh i'm gonna teach some guys that pitch and let's see what it does and and you know God willing, and hopefully nobody has any injuries, but I, I'm not so sure that that's, you know, you can argue that that, that, that is um, a myth that it's blowing up elbows. Um, yeah. You know, guys in Japan. So, so you go all over the world and there's different teachings and different things going on, and um, who's to say that those are wrong? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's a good perspective. I mean, there's just so much stuff, and you know, you hear the split finger myth, you hear all these different myths, and maybe there's truth, maybe you just don't know. But a lot of it's just tough to pin down because it's anecdotal or works for this guy, mm-hmm. or they just train differently, right? The Japanese guys throw mm-hmm. so much that mm-hmm. they were just conditioned to do that. But then when you bring them over to the United States, they all seem to get hurt, which is also a crazy weird trend. So. But I don't know. when they get to the States, there's a common trend that they pull back the reins on those guys. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Ice K with the Red Sox. I think there was an article in Sports Illustrated that he threw so much. He'd throw like 200 pitch pins. And then when he got over here with the Red Sox, they they cut that down on him. Otani this year. I mean, you could argue, well, he was playing a position too. I, I, I don't know. But he didn't have any issues before he got here. So yeah. who's to say that we have the market cornered on how to develop pitch? is really what I'm getting at. And who's to say what's right or wrong? Weighted balls, Jager throwing program, um, split fingers in Japan and 200 pitch bullpens or in the Dominican where they just throw the heck out of it all. Who's to say what's right and wrong? And that's one advantage that I think I do have is I've seen it. 
I've seen it pretty much all over the world. And really what I've done is I take little bits and pieces. Um, yeah. Alan Jager is a good friend of mine. He was, he was at my wedding and he would hate to hear this, but honestly, I don't do the entire Jager throwing program. I take bits and pieces that, that I like and that I think are that, that fit my program. And, and I add those in, I don't do the whole thing just like driveline. I don't do the whole program, but I take bits and pieces and sprinkle that in. And I really think that that's, the essence of coaching and growing as a coach is you find what works for you. You find what you're comfortable teaching and run with it. Because if you're teaching something that you're uncomfortable with, the players are going to recognize that right away. Yeah, for sure. And then it doesn't have, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with them as well. And it's not as valid because they, they will automatically question it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, as a, as a disclaimer, you know, it's just uh I think people should stop fighting so much. I think they should, mm-hmm. you know, look, explore all these different programs. Don't demonize any one. Just see if it works for you. You can take bits and pieces. You can see how it folds into your routine. It's like saying you can't do barbell squats. You have to do this. You have to do that. And it, yeah. it, If you just put it into a different light, like you said, it, a lot of it just seems silly. You know, like I'm not here to endorse or demonize any company i think a lot of the stuff that driveline's doing is good intelligent stuff Mm -hmm. and i also don't know a lot of the stuff that they're doing you know but it's just like let's just let people make informed decisions for themselves rather than having this huge polarizing crazy thing going on or it's just like we all hate each other and you can't uh, like i just like you said take bits and pieces do what works for you you know talk to a lot of people do your homework do your research you know like who who are you to say that this this college over here a thousand miles away is doing it the wrong way like if you right. don't even know like people don't know what we do in our facility i don't know your day-to-day at eku you you need to kind of walk right. in their shoes before you make a you know a, a really informed decision of what's right or wrong for you it's it's easy on the internet i think to get little snapshots of people's lives and I was just yeah. watching a video, a Casey Neistat video on YouTube, and he was talking about how it, part of the Elon Musk interview on Joe Rogan's podcast that, uh, you know, Instagram makes people's lives seem better than they are. And it can depress right. people because you see, oh, right. here's this beautiful person on the beach. Their life is so great. Well, that was just like a staged photo. That's not their normal life. You know, you right. see like one little clip of someone throwing a ball and we think, and I get this as a coach, people are like, oh, that kid's doing this wrong. I'm like, dude, he's doing eight things right. And one thing that I don't really care about, he's not really doing right. like we go in little bits like I'm putting this out there. There's some context. I'm not going like, to write a book about it. I'm just putting it right. out there and like, let's just not jump to conclusions. You know, just you see something right. on there. There might be so much more behind it. Oh, he's doing this thing. He's going to get hurt. Well, do you know how he warmed up? Like, do you know how he's been training? Do you know his conditioning? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't know anything yeah. about it. You know, we just we all right. need to pull back the reins. That's why I stay silent. In the last bunch of years, I've mostly stayed silent. Like I, I'm not gonna go out there and judge other people what they're doing. No, I might silently. But... I, and I think it's healthy. I really, and that's why I referenced the the pitching hot stove. I think it's healthy for a bunch of people to get in the room that have different ideas and openly talk about them because you may pull something from it. You may learn something or. Like you're talking about right now, if you get in the room and talk with somebody and you break down exactly what was going on in that bullpen session, then there may be a clearer understanding. Yeah, for yeah, me, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Baseball is, is one of the, uh, it seems to be the one sport where people are highly critical of what others are doing. It also seems to be the one sport where the, the transition of coaches going from pro ball back to college or college to pro ball is almost frowned upon. It's interesting. You know, you see in the NBA, the NFL, those guys are crossing back and forth all the time and it's open and, and college football coaches are, are learning from NFL football coaches and vice versa. And it seems to be a little bit more of an open dialogue in those worlds versus baseball. And I don't, I don't really understand that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting deal. And I think that that, that, that permeates through the stuff you're talking about online where there's this, it's either people are, are rooting for you or they're criticizing. Yeah. And, and I, I, I don't understand that. And that's why I want to be very, um, where I'm very, uh, open about being on the fence of driveline or any of these other things. Like it's interesting stuff, Trackman, Rapsodo, or like all these things are new tools that are really people are designing to help you. Um, 
you know, and you gotta, you gotta mess with them and, and, and dive into them a little bit to find out really is, is it a fit for you or is it not? And, and, and if it's not, that's okay. It's not like if you say, you know what, I don't want to do track man stuff with it, with my guys, that doesn't mean that you're, 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 you're being rigid or you don't want to learn or you don't want to be open to new things. You just may be saying, you know what, that's not really uh, the level that my guys are at. They don't need to be talk to about spin rate or on the other side of it you may say you know what i want to go all in on track man and driveline and do this stuff with my guys and that doesn't mean that people have to criticize you and say well yeah but you're not doing any of the old school stuff well i whatever works for you and what yeah. works for your players and if you're giving them the best advice you can and giving them the best tools then you know people should celebrate that a little bit instead of being critical of it yeah absolutely and i know from our perspective we uh a bunch of years ago, we made the conscious decision, like, we only have a couple hours per week with, you know, any given pitcher. So what's, mm-hmm. like, what do we want to teach them in those two hours, you know, mm-hmm. or, or one hour? You know, we do half-hour sessions twice a week. Like, it's not that much time. We have, right. you can't cover everything. So, like, what do we feel like we're best at and that we can give them that will help them long-term? And that was more pitchability stuff and yeah. uh and like mental stuff and that was just like the decision that i made as an instructor for the most part and you still tinker it and it's uh you know you always have constraints of time and all this other stuff too so you just don't know and you know and like with rapsodo i love the rapsodo i think all those tools are really cool we just are like more of like a junior high and high school age facility like that's mm-hmm. most of our clientele and that's advanced and we can't yeah we like we can't set the thing up they're going to hit it number one like it would be destroyed within you know a week's time and then it's like all right your spin rate today was terrible you know it's like 1142 rpm they're just like looking off into space yeah they don't even know what that is yeah they're just not and you can explain it to them but at the same time it's just there's so many millions of things that come before that and that's like a later Mm -hmm. thing where if you got a bunch of college guys and pro guys in your facility definitely is a good tool like definitely makes sense and they're going to eat it up and yeah so i I think the other thing that i'll 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 add in on this too is going in extremes can be very dangerous so i'm going to go from one extreme to the other and just totally buy into something and and that's what we're going with i think there has to be balance to, to everything you're teaching and what you're doing and when you just fall into extremes like whatever the new toy is we're gonna we're gonna test it we're gonna go with it and and I think that that can be dangerous also, especially if, you know, for this six month period, this is what I'm going with. It's the new thing. And then when the next new thing comes out with, well, I'm going to shift gears to that also. And, and I think you can run into a situation where you're, you're not staying consistent with those guys that you've had and that you're developing yeah. and, and it can get a little dicey. If you sprinkle that stuff in, I think it's okay. But if you're going in, in you know, into extremes, it, it can, some things can get lost in translate translation if you're going into complete extremes with stuff. So, for sure, for sure. and going back to what we were saying earlier, there's so much at your disposal right now. It's really easy to get caught up in that. Yeah. It's tough to wade through it. Well, Sean, is there a way to, for our, our, our viewers, listeners to follow up with you on social media or anywhere? <laughs> you incognito? Um, I- uh, a little bit. I mean, honestly, I do have a Twitter account, but I've never tweeted. I've never, I've never done any of that stuff. I, I, if, if anything, and this is me being real honest with you, I'm trying, I'm trying to get back to the side of um, just staying in the moment and today, and and staying off social media a little bit. So okay, so write uh, Sean one, a letter. Write thing, Sean a letter. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, write, yeah, write me a handwritten note. That's <laughs> that's old school, like Coach Lopez. I, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. When I first started working in Arizona, and Andy will laugh about this that I tell this story he didn't have a computer in his office and he had a, he had a flip phone and the athletic director, the new AD that came in, Greg Byrne at the time made him get an Apple uh, iPhone, made him catch up to speed. So I, 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 I'll be honest, I've adopted a little bit of what I learned under coach Lopez and just keep things simple and write things down. And, and, and I like that. And also I grew up three of my uncles are lawyers and I worked in the law one of their offices when I was in high school and everything, you know, legal notepads and write it down. And the players laugh at me at EKU now because I come outside every day with a three by five card and stuff written down. And I don't take my phone on the field. I might be one coach in the country right now that doesn't take their cell phone after the field. I just, I'm just trying to 
I'm like I said earlier, I'm trying to have that balance. I'm not trying to go in extremes. And I think you can just get caught up in, in too much <laughs> stuff being on social media too much. I'm imagining you with a, a big a really big fanny pack that has like a Polaroid camera in it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not to that extreme. I understand social media and I understand technology and I do utilize it, but I'm also I'm I'm trying to keep that healthy yeah, balance. That's good. That's good. Well, Sean, appreciate you being on the show. It was a great conversation, and you're doing some good work over there at EKU, and I, I wish you the best. Thank you. I enjoyed this. It was awesome. Have a good day. All right, so I want to thank you again for being here for Episode 62 of Dear Baseball Gods and, uh, again, my great guest, Sean Cole, uh, pitching coach at Eastern Kentucky University. Uh, Sean's a great guy, and you can tell. One of the things I, I value most, uh, I think, is, uh, is experience, um, you know, and you can tell that Sean – has a very objective view of, of baseball and of coaching. And I think that's in part because he's been so many places, right? He's been to the United States. He's coached in Latin America in pro baseball and college baseball. And I think, uh, you know, for, for young athletes out there, you know, this is one of the things your, your academics can, can really help you with. So when you do all these different internships, when you go away to college, when you, you go to different companies in the summer, you, you, you take all these different classes, you learn from different teachers, you have different coaches, different sports. That's one of the, uh, the other reasons to, uh, you know, to play multiple sports. You just never know who you're going to learn, learn from. And he referenced one of his great mentors, Andy, uh, numerous times. And you can just tell how much he's influenced his career. So being well-rounded is a really, really great, uh, great trait. And uh, you, you, you get that, I think, from taking chances, from trying new things. And uh, so it was a really you know, deep conversation from, uh, from Coach Cole, I think, in part because of all the different places that he's been and how objective he is and how open-minded he is to trying you know, new programs and, and, and being with new coaches. So, again, thank you for being here. Uh, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, YouTube, wherever you listen. You know, we have a video and audio recording of this podcast. So whichever one you're listening to, feel free to check out the other. And uh, thanks again. We'll see you next week.